Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan venture to the Midwest to track the transition from Chicago and Detroit's club culture to a widespread regional rave culture and the Milwaukee police pushback. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? I'm saying that, you know, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And I'm joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our mammoth discussion of Michelangelo Matos's mammoth, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And it's really not fair. The book actually isn't that big. The first time I read it, Ryan, I thought it was just this tome. But now it seems like kind of a quaint little handy paperback. I feel like uh, books are just getting bigger and bigger as the book binders figure out how to like make thousand page books uh, just hold together better. So I, I think oh. uh, we, we're just desensitized to it now. It, I remember it used to seem much larger and much longer than it was. And now it just feels like uh, your average, your average anything that you'd see on a bookshelf anywhere. So it's not intimidating at all anymore. No, no. And it's quite a good book. I'm not trying to diss it. Actually, the, the artfulness of his, his narrative weaving, um, like I've said before, it, it puts our other authors to shame in that one category. But yeah, every single chapter, there's always like all these little things and it's very casual. Like it's, uh, it, it, it's not some big flowery thing, but he'll just, he'll just add like a little kind of comment at the end of a sentence that'll add so much context for, for, for anyone that was there. And sometimes for people who weren't, it's, uh, it, it, Michelangelo Matos knows his way around, uh, writing books. That that he does. And so today's chapter is chapter five, The Grave, or not The Grave, just Grave. That was the name of the event. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, October 31st, 1992. Halloween, the event's called Grave. Get it? Ha-ha. Halloween, man, it's like one of the biggest rave nights of the year. And, you know, it's fittingly, but Grave comes to a bad end, and we'll talk about that at the end of the show. But let's start the chapter where he started it. And in another little bit of weaving, he links us back to the last chapter by mentioning the SF Raves list, which was it a BBS server? How was they doing this? Do you know the tech? Uh, it's a list serve. So list it's serve. like oh, okay. it's it's kind of like a strange pseudo email. Uh, I think you needed a separate program to uh, to to pull all the messages down from the listserv, but it operated basically like individual emails that came in and then you replied to them. And uh, if you had a good listserv program, it would organize it in such a way that it was kind of you could follow it through like uh, like just by clicking on each individual one and following the thread down. And in, in other ones, it was just an ungainly mass of of just messages and 
it didn't make much sense and you didn't know how to read it. And that, that was just you out of luck because you didn't have the technology to read it properly. I can't believe I forgot about listservs, but yes, that's what listservs were. And so SF Raves, we talked about last chapter. Um, and so he starts this chapter off with SF Raves um, mentioning in their first issue or the first, I guess, first missive, um, a primal scream show at the Warfield Theater with the orb opening March 6, 1992. Bellendorf, the man who ran SF Raves, wasn't impressed. Also the guy who wrote the Apache web server code. But David J. Prince was, so much so that he followed him to L.A. to see it again. And so David J. Prince kind of becomes one of the main characters in this chapter. He's a Midwesterner who had been to loft parties in Chicago, but he hadn't seen raves until he moved out to California for college, which brings another segue, artfully done, to Chicago. And he tells us about the decline of house. And we talked about this um, with Reynolds and I believe with Brewster and Broughton too, but always a good time to review. Yeah, and in both of those books, they basically said after you know the initial uh you know definition of house being set in chicago apologies for my voice it is going to come in and out a little bit i've been uh maybe hit with the covid we'll see uh but uh yeah when once once house was kind of minted and then it started going international they were like and then chicago see the chicago scene died the end and we kind of talked about how it's more like it just kind of went more underground and finally, in this book, they talk about what was going on, the the seeds for the next generation that were still happening in Chicago after after the mid-90s when everybody left. Absolutely. And, you know, they, they talked about how House had been the urban sound of Chicago, Black and Latin Chicago in the 80s. It held off hip-hop for all of that decade. And um, that changed in the 90s as hip-hop became enormously popular. And also, House lost its radio support. And both the juice bars, the after-hour bars, and and the, the more traditional alcohol-serving clubs were hit Um with a double whammy by the cops or the ordinances on one side, like banned after hours juice bars or made them close at the same time as bars. So that killed places like the music box. And then the mob starts moving in on the clubs as well. So kind of getting it from both ends. Meanwhile, Frankie Knuckles had moved back to New York. Uh, Silk Hurley and Jesse Saunders had moved to LA and were, um, you know, trying to make a go of it as mainstream producers. Uh, Ron Hardy passed away in 1992 as did Larry Levan of the paradise garage in New York. Frankie Knuckles mentor and friend. So, you know, kind of some hard times for Chicago house, but um, there were still things going on. And, and this is where he talks about a club called Medusa that had actually, or Medusa's um, had actually were the ones that got the juice bars banned. And they were kind of a, a goth club, but they played some tracks and DJ international stuff. So they, they had some house sound going, but they were also playing a lot of like cure and new order and also ministry and KF um, MDM and front two, four, two and stuff like that. The industrial sound, which was wax tracks was one of the Chicago labels. And so um, Matos calls this calls Medusa, the incubator for the rave scene. They were also bringing up ecstasy from Dallas, which, and I, you know, I knew it was, it hadn't been federally banned, but I don't know. I need to look into this and see where the laws in Texas especially lenient uh, on ecstasy. And that's why it was so prevalent in Dallas. 
I think it's just one of those things where once it starts happening in one place, that that kind of ends up being the jump off spot until until the cops come in and stomp it out, you know. So yeah. like when once it was happening there and it kind of developed a thing and people from Dallas were leaving Dallas, going other places and then then basically just kind of uh, going back and getting more and bringing it to the new spots. All of a sudden you have a, an ad hoc network of of ecstasy going across all over America from yep. Dallas. Johnny Appleseed came come from, from Dallas. And so, but then he talks about how uh, attempts to mix the industrial scene with the dance scene had failed. Like Vince Lawrence um, had produced a whole album of dance tracks with an industrial tinge and Geffen shelved it, uh, shelved it, which one of the worst things about big labels is when they let an artist finish an album and then they shelve it. Cause you know, it's never coming off that shelf that, Totally drives me crazy. Um, Vince Lawrence is like a, a big name. He he was the guy uh, that worked with Jesse Saunders on On and On, which is considered one of the first house tracks. He he was one of the main guys behind Tracks Records, so he was you know a real mover and shaker in in the house scene. So it's one of those things where once I read that, I, I spent some time like digging around on the internet trying to find this thing. And man, when something gets shelved in like the eighties or the nineties, it really gets shelved. It, it doesn't exist anywhere. It gone and it could very well be gone gone after the fire at the universal uh music warehouse uh in 2008 that destroyed apparently half a million master tracks everything from louis jordan to um soundgarden got wiped so this this and geffen was one of the labels that was affected so it could have been lost before it was ever even heard annoying um they also talk about carl craig the uh, detroit second wave detroit DJ who's gonna and producer who's gonna be making his mark. He was actually shopping demos to Wax Tracks, not to be confused with Tracks Records, but Wax Tracks with an exclamation point, which was the industrial label that was putting out ministry and everything. Weren't they also in Chicago too? Yeah, they were in Chicago. They were originally Wax Tracks Records was in Denver, but they moved to Chicago. There was a record store originally, and they had Wax Tracks Record stores in both Denver and Chicago and started the label and ran it in Chicago. There's a good documentary on Wax Tracks. And they also talked about how um, Wax Tracks stuff was failing to get over with the house audience, and it seems to have been marketing because at some point somebody bootlegged a Front 242 track, made it look like a house record with the tracks style label and got big play in the chicago clubs and wax tracks you know one of them told matos that i wish you know we had sold that many in chicago i think they sold more than us but let's go ahead and, and cue our first track and appropriately enough it's front 242 what you hear is what you get And that was Front 242, some dance-adjacent industrial from Wax Tracks Records. What you hear is what you get. Do I need to ask you why you picked that one? No, I mean, I picked it straight from 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 the book. And it's just one of the many Front 242 tracks that are, uh, that are, that are very dance-adjacent and, if marketed properly, could definitely have uh, been played more at raves and stuff. And it always kind of interested me 
how it, you know, coming into the scene from an industrial point, like I came in off of Nine Inch Nails into electronic music, and it always surprised me that there wasn't more bleed over. And then to find out that it did bleed over in Europe. Uh, but yeah, in North America, the, the scene stayed separate. And I do have to wonder whether or not racism played a part. I would suspect it did, especially in these early days, although as the rave scene becomes wider, as it will in this chapter, you'd think the industrial um, could have got a foot in. But by that time, they were selling mega units. Ministry and Nine Inch Nails and others were were moving big units and, and I guess didn't need to market themselves to the rave scene or whatever. But the scene migrates then to loft parties in Chicago. And so um, you've got... Uh, things like Reactor uh, 115 Westlake with DJ Rush and Ron Trent um, and people like David J. Prince had been going to these parties. That's where he had seen um, Frankie Knuckles. And after hearing about him for a while and, and from people who had seen him at Medusa's, which was the club we were just talking about, where the that was one of the few places that was mixing goth and industrial and um, house uh, in Chicago. And then Matt Adele, who's a buddy of David J. Prince's, um, and he had managed Streetlight Records in San Francisco while he was in college. He was a Chicago native. He moves back to Chicago in 1990, briefly works at Wax Tracks, and then starts his own label, Organico Records, and signs Derek Carter. Tell us about great, Derek Great, Carter. great, great label, Organico Records, like going through a lot of that earlier stuff. You can, you can hear that influence again, like when we're talking about how industrial in Europe uh, kind of bled into electronic music more, creating trance, basically – uh, when you listen to Organico Records, you can hear that Wax Tracks influence where you've got a bit more of an industrial sound going on on a lot of the different records. But it's funny because you have you have that and then you have a guy like Derek Carter, who is pretty much the housiest of the house DJs, uh, releasing some really smooth piano driven, uh, not not jazzy, but definitely saxophone backed house music on the same label. So Organico Divas? was doing. Are we hmm? featuring Divas? Nah, no, a little bit, a little bit. Nothing, nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. It's a bit smoother than that. A bit more understated than that. I see. I see. But still, Deep House would it merit the appellation? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Deep House existed at this point, but it definitely falls in there, anyways. Yeah, it's the kind of thing people are later going to call Deep House when they talk about how deep into house they are. Um, and then they also talk about this guy James Johnson, who promoted as E System. Get it? E System. <laughs> he's he's uh, Matos calls him Chicago's first rave impresario, and so he's doing things like the Tropical Breeze Party, fall of 1991, just a small party warehouse at 46th in Michigan. Um, and then Enjoy, which is on the blue line, if you know Chicago at all, uh, drew 250. Um, but he's playing more of a breakbeat sound. So it's it's. Would you call this? Do you, I, I guess? Well, I remember remember that the breakbeats the, the the breakbeat sound kind of falls into that hole. It's the beginning of hardcore kind of coming over. You know, like uh, the okay, techno so, has breakbeat breakbeats in it, and then a couple of years later, it speeds up to the point where it's basically hardcore rave. Okay. Okay. So it's not hip house. This isn't a Todd Terry or whatever. This is this is early hardcore, proto hardcore. Yeah, but so. before before it really starts hitting that, before they start jacking it up to plus eight and then start producing it at plus eight. Okay. And then uh, his next uh, promo is the journey into rhythm. That one draws eight hundred people. And then uh, Groove Year in early nineteen ninety two. He's bringing in out of town DJs by this point. So this is kind of interesting. I mean. 
talk about bringing Cole to Newcastle. He's bringing DJs to Chicago in the early 90s, people like Adam X from New York City and uh, DJ ESP, a.k.a. Woody McBride, from Minneapolis of all places. And we'll be hearing from Woody McBride again um, as this goes on. And then Matos kind of contrasts. There's two scenes going on in Chicago. There's a loft scene, which is kind of the remnants of the old warehouse or music box scene, the old classic Chicago house club scene. And that's where you've got DJs like Derek Carter and Lego and Spencer Kinsey and Diz um, working the turntables. Then you've got a rave scene with DJs like Hyperactive, James Johnson, Miles Maeda, and Josh Warner, who are also going to be hearing about a lot. And Doc Martin comes out from San Francisco, or maybe he was coming from LA, but originally Doc Martin's from San Francisco. We talked about him last week. He comes out there and plays The Shelter, and Matos has this great quote. He's like, cool, I'm going to Chicago. I'll just bring some of my house stuff and he gets there and he's totally shocked that they're not playing house. They're playing like Speedy J and Amsterdam techno. So, um, and he's also notes that the ravers are younger, whiter and greater in number that he calls them white kids from nearby suburbs. So it's an interesting period when one era is kind of ending and a new era is beginning. Yeah. And this is the beginning of, of what you see throughout the nineties and two thousands, which is that the house scene and the rave scene they basically split apart and, you know, people travel in between them and people grow out of one into another or people, you know, go more hardcore and fall into the other. But for the most part, the rave, the rave scene is, is, is kind of a different aesthetic and it's a different, uh, morality isn't the right word, but it's, def- it's just a, a whole ethos. other, yeah, a different ethos and a different kind of subculture and house is almost, uh, kind of, uh, you know, comparatively to uh, the underground rave stuff going on is practically mainstream or at the very least it's kind of something, uh, you know, a bit more hoity toity on, on the side. If you're it's in the know. Aimed, aimed at people who have jobs and, and are adults. Right. Yes. Is that a fair, you know, and, yes, I, and yes, adin- exactly. additionally tend to be more black and more gay. But fundamentally, I think the split is one of maturity and just where you are in your life, because there's, um, you know, it's an age, yeah, an age yeah. thing as well. Like a, there's a number of elements to it. But, yeah, this the split is there and it stays there and it's still there today. And and that's where we bring up Curtis A. Jones, who we've talked about uh, during the energy flash uh, period. He's AKA, Curtis A. Jones, a.k.a. Cashmere, spelled with a J, a.k.a. Green Velvet, one of my favorites, um, producer. He's um, doing some straight-up house stuff. He's working with a singer named Karen Gordon, a.k.a. Dodge. Is that how you say that? I've never heard it said out loud in my life. It's D-A-J-A-E. So apologies I... for getting that wrong if we did. Maybe we got it right. I don't know. Be optimistic, Nate. Um, but they're doing things like uh, the Keep Moving, backed with the Straight Up Drugs remix, um, with um, Gordon billed as Nene, N-A-N-E. And it features this weird little rubbery percussion sound. And then he keeps going back to that. Three four records in, he makes The Percolator. And um, it's, it's a hit. And let's go ahead and hear it. This is Cashmere, The Percolator, from 1992.
And that's The Percolator by Cashmere from 1992. Cashmere, a.k.a. Curtis A. Jones, a.k.a. Green Velvet. And I'm loving the second wave of House. So do we even, again, Do I, did I already spoil you why you picked this one? Or doing this uh, you things? know, I've, I've been picking them pretty obviously based on their, their positions in the chapters and stuff like that. But yeah, this is, this is, this is the, the track that puts the second wave of House in Chicago. It really says it's here. This is a big hit. Everybody's digging it. Mainstream underground it doesn't matter there's a dance for it and uh, you know when you can take one track like that with a sound like that and you can make like 15 different records out of it then you know you got something with you know if not legs then at least there's a trend going on and they can build off of that and finally it's no longer this slide that you were seeing with everybody fleeing chicago and everybody moving to hip-hop now you've got cashmere here like uh, setting something up new that can be built on top of and uh, things are. And so that's kind of exciting. Yeah. And yet it also links back to the tradition of Chicago house, like in the finest Chicago house, you know, tradition of like uh, Jesse Saunders on and on that you're just talking about, which is a totally janky shit sounding production. The percolator. I mean, it sounds cheap. It sounds funky. It's, it's weird. And, and it's very Chicago. It's just awesome. Um, makes me happy. I love, I love sharing the planet with green velvet. So thank you, Curtis A. Jones, um, for your contributions. And then he follows it up with a hit, uh, Brighter Days. This one's billed by to um, DJ by Karen Gordon again. This makes it all the way to number two on the Billboard dance chart. So he's actually doing business. It gets remixed by big names out of New York, like Masters at Work and Todd Terry. And then um, he's got his own labels. He's got Relief Records. And casual records with a J, so cashmere and casual, casual. I, I'm assuming you say it that way. And and then meanwhile, there's prescription records with Ron Trent and Shay Damier doing deep house. So Chicago's, it's alive. It's not as big as it was in the '80s, but it's it's thriving and continuing to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. It never it never stops. So it just changes and metamorphizes. And uh, if 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 the music industry can't make as many bucks off of it. They might declare it as dead, but it was always, it always kept rolling. And, and here's the Chicago house. And then he segues to Detroit techno. The second wave of Detroit techno starts to make its mark. And um, he calls underground resistance, America's most important techno group ever. Like Reynolds with Reynolds. I think Reynolds is the better music critic than Matos. I would always have these great descriptive quotes of the music from Reynolds. And this is one of the few uh, descriptive, it's not even descriptive. It's just a qualitative assertion. But it's hard to argue. I love Underground Resistance. I so wish I had been aware of them in the 90s. It would have totally changed my life. I had no idea anything going on. And Underground Resistance is three guys from Detroit, Jeff Mills, Mad Mike Banks, and Robert Hood, a.k.a. Robin Hood. And um, as as Matos notes, all three of them are going to move on to equally brilliant solo work, which differs a little bit than Reynolds' assessment, but... I tend to agree with Matos here that, that all three of them do pretty notable stuff. Um, Mills is kind of the the guy they build around. He um, was originally the wizard on radio, and he was a rival to the Electrify Mojo. And we talked about Electrify Mojo in the first or second episode of this series. Electrify Mojo is kind of the guy who put the sounds in the heads of the Belleville Three and makes Detroit techno, Detroit techno. And Mills was one of his rivals. He was also in an industrial band called Final Cut. He meets um, Mad Mike Banks, who's an ex-session musician, and they um, 
formulate this vision of a, being a public enemy for techno, which is a perfect description of underground resistance. Absolutely. And uh, one thing about Jeff Mills and, and Electrifying Mojo, Electrifying Mojo was a, a radio DJ in the truest sense. He would get on there and he would talk and he would create a mood and he would play tracks. Uh, but even some of even his DJ mixes were often mixed by other DJs and given to him to play. And without giving some, him credit, like the young Belleville three. Exactly. Well, Jeff Mills was a real DJ technician. He didn't talk. He just DJed and he would mix together like 50 tracks in half an hour. He, he was really was the wizard. So he was uh, he was a true DJ's DJ in a time where where you know that was just coming up. So that's where he kind of came out, and he was the 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 main guy behind behind everything uh, that they built around because of that. Yeah, uh, that underground resistance, and it's also telling that just like Jeff Mills, Public Enemy started out on the radio. Chuck D and Hank Chalkley and 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 the Bomb Squad and those guys started out on radio on Long Island. So uh, Mills uh, came by it honestly, very similar aesthetic, just overload with the samples and very hyper stuff. And then they bring in um, Robert Hood, and who has a great story. I don't know if, how great it is, but he had survived his his original DJ partner uh, taking a beating for playing the wrong records. And and Hood's assessment was, you know, they don't fool around in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, it really tells you how uh, difficult it is to get a new sound off the ground if you're dealing with that kind of an entrenched situation where if you play something that's uh, not not up to snuff or, or not expected you could, you, you know, it's, it's not just, uh, you're going to have somebody come up and, and, and ruin your night by saying it, you know, can you play some real dance music? No, they will, uh, they will clean your clock. <laughs> they will ruin your night and your week and your, uh, uh, financial situation. And it's very similar to, you know, Jamaica has a big tradition of bottling DJs or, or, MCs they don't like by throwing bottles at them. The, you know, the Apollo and Harlem infamous for um, booing people off stage. And in Detroit, they will just flat whip your ass, or at least would in the late 80s, early 90s. But anyway, they they go ahead and start their own label because Juan Atkins, the founder of the Belleville 3, was sort of dithering about putting them on Metroplex. And so they don't waste their time waiting for them. They just get after it, start putting things out like the Riot EP in 1991, and then Mad Mike's Death Star from 1992 they also have the x101 and x102 nom de jams that's my own coinage because when they were cutting tracks live they would credit them to x101 and x102 and that's what i learned from Matos. i had no idea from reynolds that they were doing that but this kind of volatility cannot hold and they break up relatively quickly while they're working on x103's uh discovers the rings of saturn which is a super cool record. Never seen it in phys physically, but I've seen it on the internet. They um, get some help from some Germans who show them how to carve the rings on the records somehow. Can you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they had a whole bunch of interesting things that were going on because they happened to be friends with uh, guys who were were doing really interesting things at the pressing plants, and they had uh, they had records that would that would roll through the grooves and move across the records in in different ways, and uh, it was it was really fascinating to see. So it, you know when you when you have uh you know when you have a, a city like like Chicago and for a while it's just run by a guy who's literally making records out of old shoes 
<laughs> you, you get you get one thing, and then when when you have uh, another time period where, or you have a, have Detroit where you have you know audiophiles who are super geeky about it, and they're the ones in control. Then you get stuff like X 103s discovers the rings of Saturn, where the whole thing looks almost like a like a like a like a galaxy. And 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 they did it in partnership with Germans, and Mills even moves to Berlin. Like it's the classic. Detroit, Berlin, Axis. Um, no, no uh, relationship to the the, the Berlin Rome Axis that caused so much trouble in the 1940s. But it's a musical axis, and this partnership between Detroit and Berlin is fitting because Kraftwerk. You know, the uh, I think it was Derek May who described the aesthetic of the Belleville Three in Detroit Techno as Kraftwerk and George Clinton trapped in an elevator with a sequencer. So, only fitting to take it back home to Berlin. And then, um, meanwhile, he's he's segue. Oh, Stephanie's telling me it's time for our sponsor cue. So let's take a break. Hear from our sponsors when we come back. We'll do Matos's next elegant segue. And so our next little segue is uh, Matos introduces a character named DJ Nick Nice, whose real name is Nick Adriano, who um, had spent his junior year of college in 1990 in Paris of all places, and caught the rave bug there. We have not talked much about French dance music, or generally bring that in when you start talking about Daft Punk much later on in the mid-90s. But Paris did have a scene. They were a little bit behind England, and, or London and Amsterdam, or Manchester or Berlin, but they are well ahead of the States. And he comes back to Wisconsin in the summer of 1991 and starts promoting what he refers to now as pre-raves, that initially featured hip hop, um, but then start segueing into techno and house and acid house, I guess, uh, by this point. MDA, MDMA, aka E, aka X, aka Ecstasy, hits the scene as well. Um, he puts on a big Halloween party in 1991. No problems at all. And this is an allusion to what's going to happen to. Uh, the next Halloween party we discuss in this chapter. Then he does the the ravey. Is that how you would say it? Because it's rave with an extra e at the end. I think the the second e is silent, so uh, it's like you, you could just say rave, ravey, and you know, like you know, you can you can add as much e as you want to be as <laughs> add as much e as you want. Wink, wink. And so that was May fifteenth, nineteen ninety two. Matos calls it the Upper Midwest's first serious rave outside of Chicago and Detroit takes place in a barn outside Madison, Wisconsin. And so Madison's a big college town in Wisconsin, um, very much a cultural hub uh, there in the upper Midwest. Then he comes back and does Alice in Raveland again with the extra E, just in case anybody's missing the hint. It's August. a branding thing now, man. Like, yeah. and you're adding it in there and the cops don't, the cops don't know yet. The cops don't get the, uh, the little wink, wink. The, and and we'll we'll hear more about how they don't know about ecstasy at the end of this chapter. They goes back to the same barn August twenty eighth for the Alice in Raveland thing. And I should mention also back to Underground Resistance um, that M Mad Mike Banks has a great anecdote about the first time he met Jeff Mills, who he had known as the Wizard but had never heard him speak on the radio. And he's this little guy running around in a house, and he very much thought he was the Wizard of Oz. Um, so just had to throw that in there. Um, but at the Allison Raveland gig, uh, Nick Adriano gets Woody McBride, who we mentioned before, to DJ. Also, Tommy Sunshine from Chicago comes up, and they're playing, quote, full-on 160 beats per minute banging stuff. And that Matos, or 
I think its source compares to Aphex Twin's Xylem Tube EP, which is coming out about this time. So Matas is doing a good job of hitting the big musical developments in a very subtle way here. Yeah, I mean, this is like a whole kind of the shock waves of what's going on in Chicago and Detroit echoing out through the Midwest. And now we're now we're out in Wisconsin and it's, uh, you know, a farm country. So you're getting barn raves. And let me tell you, you haven't lived until you've had like a big old farm barn rave They're They're a lot of fun. I used to call them uh, like uh, dirt raves because basically you just go out into a field. Your car would get, you know, one foot stuck in the mud. And then you just stay there until the weather got nice enough that the the mud dried up and you could actually roll out of it. And uh, <laughs> but but the barn was nice. The barn was nicer than you'd think until you got home. Like and for the rest of the week, you're blowing uh, like yellow hay dust out of your nose. <laughs> yes, barns. Uh, there's a trade-off. They're warm and cozy with all that hay, but then you got the the hay dust, the dreaded hay dust. But it's also it's not just Chicago and Detroit echoing. It's Chicago and Detroit bouncing over to Europe. And the impact then they make in England and Germany and Holland and France, then that comes back uh, to form the rave culture. It's that classic laundering African-American culture so that Anglo-Americans can enjoy it um, or will consent to enjoy it or whatever. I don't know. And I, and I do have to wonder if DJ Nick Nice, uh, the fact that he was in Paris and uh, you're right, we, we never talked much about Paris's scene and it gets short shrift in the early 90s because there's not a lot of, uh, I guess, like unique genesis of the rave scene happening there. But what's going on there is very similar to like a lot of the Spiral Tribe stuff happening. There's a lot of free tech parties, a lot of free raves a lot of like even more underground than than what's going on in the UK a lot of free stuff a lot of fast stuff so the fact that he comes back and he's throwing these parties and it's already 160 beats per minute in 1991 i do have to give credit to paris or france in general for that because that's how they were doing it i see i see good to know good to know and then then they go into a little bit more detail about Woody McBride, a.k.a. DJ ESP. Um, he starts DJing at the House Nation parties at First Avenue. Um, Kevin Cole was a D, the house DJ at First Avenue. And First Avenue, for rock, rock, any rockist will know, is this legendary club in Minneapolis where the whole 80s Minneapolis scene, Prince, The Replacements, Husker Du, all those bands were playing at First Avenue all the time. And they had a side room where uh, Kevin Cole and Thomas Spiegel were DJing. And Woody McBride starts, uh, that's where he starts DJing there. And he becomes the co-conspirator to Plan Grave um, with... Nick Nice and Vance. Who's Vance? Why do I have Vance in my notes? Can you bail me out here? I'm looking looking up your notes too, and I'm not seeing who Vance is. <laughs> so that could be my my infamous um, text editor. Not I, I might not have told it to learn the spelling of somebody's last name. Uh, it's Price. I bet you it's Price. I bet you I misspelled it. Um, Prince, not Vance. It's Prince. It's David J. Prince, the guy that starts the whole chapter. My bad. Apologies. But this road trip party network starts forming and they call themselves I-94 Ravers. And if you look at I-94 on a map, it goes all the way from Billings, Montana, through uh, Minneapolis, through Madison, Wisconsin, through Milwaukee, through Chicago, through Detroit. So it's the thread that connects all those upper Midwest cities. And it's and, a 12-hour drive from one end to the other. And people would do it to go to raves. And I've done it. 
I used to used to come from Ottawa to Chicago, which was 12 hours. And then you could drive another eight hours long to get to Montana. And like uh, everybody was just it was it was one whole scene. And, and maybe it was partially because the Midwest was was once again on those listservs. It was all kind of bound together. And the people had that mentality. If it was on the I-94, you could drive it. You know, it's not as convenient as the UK orbital raves, but but God damn it, <laughs> gas was cheap. And, yes. they, and they and when there's a will, there's a way. And and people would go like six, seven hours on the drop of a hat if there was like a cool party to go to. And there were lots of cool parties like Panic in Detroit, September 6th, 1992, a Journey Through the Hardcore, October 23rd, 1992. That was at the Majestic Theater in Detroit. Um, KMS Records, which was Kevin Saunderson's label, put that on. He dabbled in promotion briefly. And listen to this DJ lineup they had. They had Underground Resistance, Blake Baxter, Kevin Saunderson himself, D. Wynn, Juan Atkins, uh, again, the founder of the Belleville Three, Richie Houghton. Not yet Plastic Man, Claude Young, Alan Oldham, also Mannix, and Moby comes in. Moby's like in every chapter. Mannix also happening to be the uh, the the solo project of Four Hero from the UK, who's so important to the breakbeat uh, hardcore scene and the uh, evolution of Jungle. So Mannix, not a small name at all. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I would love to have been at that party. Uh, how long did people get to DJ? Like... Uh, they couldn't have been doing full sets. But let's go ahead and hear our next track. And this is Mad Mike Banks' Death Star. I guess it was just Mad Mike on the label. And that was Mad Mike's Death Star. Out of all the underground resistance and affiliated tracks we talked about, why'd you pick that one? Because uh, it's really weird. It's got a uh, it's got a weird time signature on the beats, and then the the synth lines are just the traditional four four. So the beat rolls back, but the synth lines stay the same. So what you have is every every sixteen or whatever the time signature is, every every like half minute, the beat slides back and the synth line realigns to the new beat grid. And you have a whole new vibe for that synth sound, and it's really weird, and it's really intense. So it gives you that whole underground resistance intensity. And uh, yeah, go and check out the full version because it's worth listening to it for seven minutes. Yeah, I, again, underground resistance probably might be my favorite of the entire genre of the, all the stuff that I've been learning about. I really, really dig that. And yeah, what you're talking about, those synth gives you – a really weird feel i actually tried to dance to that track which people would kill to see me trying to dance uh to anything but to that one um <laughs> it was quite the me and the dog were having i feel like we might have to bring you to the detroit electronic music festival or whatever it's called now i think movement we needed to bring you up here when cashmere and uh maybe some of these guys are playing still <laughs> hey you know maybe people could start a gofundme to bring nate up to Detroit, uh, if if there's enough money in it, I'll I'll do. I'd, actually, I'd love to go anyway. But so old school rave experience and drive up. It's only like 17 hours. <sighs> yeah, that's <laughs> too old for that. Way too old for that. But now we come 
to grave. And this is the event that they named the chapter about. It's set up for a warehouse um, on West Virginia Street there in um, Madison, uh, Milwaukee. Not M- M- Madison, but they go to Milwaukee. Milwaukee is a city city, unlike Madison, which is a college town. Um, Milwaukee's like mini Chicago, kind of. It's only about an hour away from Chicago. Similar, well, even more old architecture. I mean, Milwaukee was built up. It was a beer town, and they didn't rebuild it. It hasn't been that gentrified. So especially in the 90s, had a lot of old architecture, old city. They go full out. They get uh, they rent a 24-speaker system. They have IntelliBeams pretty early on for having that kind of stuff. They've got digitally controlled strobes. So they're going all out. And unbeknownst to them, though, that some other promoters called the Drop Base Network had drawn police attention with a rave they put on called Tempest, which they called a rager. And um, the, the Milwaukee police had taken note of this. And they're kind of after the Drop Base Network. I'm betting the Drop Base Network was black just because I know American police. And um, so the, the guys promoting Grave don't know this is coming. They had had uh, Underground Resistance Rob Robert Hood headlining the Tempest Rager as DJ Rob Noise. Or was he headlining Grave? Am I getting that wrong? I think he was. Uh, I think he was uh, headlining Grave. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He was headlining Grave. So, uh, got a premiere DJ here, and 1:30 a.m. November 1st, and the police raid. So, and this is just over the top. Reynolds had talked about this as well in Energy Flash. They arrest 973 people, which I've never seen anything like that. That is amazing. 970, almost 1,000 people. And the charge was that, quote, subject was on an unlicensed public premises where the person in charge was permitting the consumption of alcoholic beverages. And the alcoholic beverages in question was a six-pack of beer and maybe a bottle of vodka for the DJ. So they had some private booze for the DJs and nobody else. And the police. weird part about it, if you're going to show up with with riot gear and like over 50 cops and arrest everybody, you figure they would at least have an understanding of of what they were going to charge everybody with or, or, you know, what what the cover story was going to be for getting getting at them. But they didn't even really seem to understand. Like, I guess they they understood their understanding was this was a drug selling operation, but they didn't even understand what drugs were being sold. They didn't uh, they, they seemed to be looking for powder, not pills. So when they weren't finding what they were looking for, they they, they just got really confused. And they ended up having to charge everybody uh, over over a weird alcohol law saying, you know, these people, this is an underage event and there's booze at it. But there wasn't because yeah, everybody but- was on drugs. So it was a complete <laughs> they, they completely missed the point and screwed up the the entire thing. And I remember uh, I wasn't raving when when this happened, but this is a story that, that echoed through rave history for years after that because you never knew whether or not the cops were going to show up, just one or two officers that were kind of bemused and confused and just like wag their finger at you or whether or not you were going to get like the entire – uh, division out, uh, accusing you of being human traffickers and drug dealers and like trying to throw the book at you. It was, it was a complete, it, you never knew what you were going to get depending on what County line you were sitting on, what, what city you were doing it in, what venue you happened to do it in, or maybe what powerful person happened to own a club that wasn't happy that it was empty that night. Yeah. And, and it's funny, they talk about how, 
uh, people are pulling pills out of their pockets and throwing them on the floor, and the police aren't picking them up. They, they don't mention – they mention um, assorted pills in their reports, but they don't ask anybody about it. Even all the – they've zip-cuffed hundreds of people. They're not even asking about what these pills are, uh, and, and they don't charge anybody for possession of ecstasy. So it's um, – as Nice says – they had absolutely no idea what was going on. So this is an early but ill-intended – like we've we've talked about an energy flash and stuff. We've talked about how – and I guess a couple mentions here. Typically when the police would encounter raves without having been you know, made hysterical about it in the media beforehand, they would generally just check it out. If the scene wasn't too violent, they might talk to the kids in charge or the promoters in charge and just kind of let it go. In this instance, they came with ill intentions, but they hadn't learned anything else except this was bad and we don't like it. And they end up showing their ass in a big way. One of the kids who gets arrested is the child of an ex-cop who became a lawyer, so she knows her rights. They try to get a class action suit together, but nobody really wants to pursue it enough um, to sue uh, the – and I was going to say a three-letter word – for police officer that I'm just not going to say, but you know what I mean. Um, but nobody, nobody stuck it to the man on that one, but they did have to drop all the charges and it was pretty big ass showing for the Milwaukee PD. Yeah. That's the one, uh, that's the, that's the one silver lining is that this is like the, the, one of those times where they go in and they arrest all the ravers and it doesn't work. And it probably stops a number of mass arrests in the future because it's like one of those things that if it had worked the first time and they had figured out a way to just fine everybody and make the fine stick, then maybe it would have become like a, like a constant kind of uh, route of attack. But uh, fortunately, it didn't. It really screwed up. Everybody looked foolish. And uh, you, you didn't hear about that kind of thing after that. For the most part, usually what happens is the cops would come and, uh, you know, if they could find who the promoters were, they would arrest the promoters. Uh, but one of the, their favorite things that they used to do, especially around where I was, was they would they would impound the uh, impound the sound system. But that also didn't really work either because the sound systems were often rented from legit companies that would just come on Monday and be like, give us our stuff back. Yeah, and, and later on they'll learn to confiscate the DJ's record collections, which which tends to hurt a lot more than going after rental rental equipment. But yeah, so lucky break for this scene. It buys a scene a few years, actually, before the police harassment is really going to ramp up around the turn of the millennium, and Matos will be covering that uh, in a later chapter. But let's hear our next track. This is Mannix's Feel Real Good from 1991. real good by Mannix from 1991. Tell us why you picked that one. You know, I, again, I mentioned that Mannix is uh, one of is the, one of the guys from Four Hero, and uh, to me, it's a 
mentioning him and playing his music is important because he was bouncing over and coming over to the Midwest and interacting with the Belleville three and interacting with the underground resistance guys. And, and it was all, it's all part of that networking that we talk about that we feel like Michelangelo Matos's book does so much better to, to really lay out the map and how everybody's kind of interconnected to each other. So Mannix is there in Milwaukee playing at this thing. He's also in Chicago hanging out with uh, with people there, also in Detroit hanging out with people there, bringing people over to the UK as well. And they're all sharing knowledge. They're all sharing like subculture ethos. And uh, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, and I think that sort of helped me understand the way Matos did that and the way he mentioned, and like in earlier chapters when he talked about, you know, the Belleville three making tea for these Dutchmen that had just shown up out of the blue because they were fans. It gives me a much clearer idea of how these ideas and how these records were getting across the ocean and getting played at the right parties. I mean, the DJs knew what was hip and they were, they knew what records were cool and they and the travel was cheap this was a kind of a golden era for travel the berlin wall had fallen down 9-11 had not yet happened so um it seemed like a peace dividend was breaking out across the planet and and young people you know i was 18 in 87 and when the berlin wall fell you can't imagine if you didn't grow up in the cold war terrified of nuclear holocaust your entire childhood and then all of a sudden you turn 18 and become an adult and it's gone like as we're seeing now it's actually not gone and we're probably closer to getting blown up by nukes than anybody since uh 1962 but nonetheless in the late 80s and early 90s it really felt like this evil burden had been lifted off the planet and kids are free to travel from detroit to berlin from berlin to los angeles from san francisco to london back and forth super cheap cross-pollinating all this stuff so you get people like richie hutton playing in in amsterdam and berlin and you're also getting people like mannix coming over from england and playing in the upper midwest so yeah that was a really everybody talking on the internet and chatting and there was a real technological optimism about what the internet was going to bring and you know it didn't really work out that way but at the <laughs> it time, did for a while it's true. That's that's the whole thing. It's like people don't know how great well, all the young, all the young kids listening to this don't know how great the internet was for the first fifteen years before everybody got on it and ruined it. Yes, yes, and before it was controlled by a handful of monopolies that just you know made it this surveillance state censorship nightmare that we're dealing with now. But back then, it was free in every sense of the word. You know, it I mean, it did cost some money to get online, but no, there weren't massive fees, and it was free in the liberty sense, and you could communicate. And again, um, if you read along the book with us, definitely check out the mixography. There's some great dance sets. Uh, there's a particularly good one from Jeff Mills of Underground Resistance playing on Kedge FM in Dallas in the early 90s. Also a Derek Carter set that I really dug from genre from 1992. Did you have any other favorites from the mixography? Yeah, I, I like the Nick Nice one because it, it, it was a good mix of like uh, hardcore, and but also some like housey stuff in there as well. So it kind of showed like that, that jump back and forth where it's like we could give you a little bit of house, but it's really rave music. Yeah, and that was from the Allison Raveland show in Madison that we had talked about. And there, and there was also a French Invasion Nick Nice set as well. There's also a, a Woody McBride set from 1993 that he talks about. And he also has a Spiral Tribe um, 
uh, set from Castle Morton. And so we should mention that, that Castle Morton happens around the same time. Spiral Tide was kind of what we would call crusty punks or crusty ravers that were had taken sort of the old um, traveling, uh, and now I'm forgetting what they called it in England, the travelers, I guess, that that was... Uh, I think that's of, the, the, the non-offensive name for them. Yes, um, one of one of them, and um, but they they were kind of leftovers from the old hippie festival scene that had gone electronic and gotten into electronic dance music around this time. And so, Spiral Tribe was this DJ producer group that was also a, a tribe of people living outside the system, and they put on a massive free show at Castle Morton and got busted. And that was kind of one of the events that really started the crackdown on spontaneous. Um, I wouldn't call them illegal raves. I'd call them paralegal raves or outside the law. But that that was kind of the end of the party. So um, I was glad to see that he had that set in there because I didn't know that that set existed online. So, yeah, the mixography is one of the best parts of this book. Do not miss it. Any final thoughts on this week's episode? No, I think that's about it. Yeah, as far as the Spiral Tribe goes, you can hear the influence on a lot of the Wisconsin stuff. Like, again, a lot of that kind of underground resistance, really banging strange techno uh, bleeds into what they were doing in Wisconsin because they're like out in the middle of nowhere. No one's trying to be cool. It really it really boils everything down to the most aggressive dancey beats that you can get. And I always appreciated that about about. The Midwest is that uh, they were there were there was there was no pretension to the rave there. It was all about going at it in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, they're just they're just getting out there and dance. And so for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We are continuing the techno roll discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. And next week, we'll be back to discuss his take on the storm rave scene in Staten Island, New York, Late 1992. Look That's going to be good. Yeah. All right, thanks, Ryan. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears bold foot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com, grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate take a break from The Underground is Massive to discuss Circuit House. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 